0: It's time for Making It Personal, a personalized SC podcast brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Education's personalized learning team. Let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Making It Personal podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Beach, and today I am joined by some very special guests from Griggs Road Elementary. Today we are joined by Dory Petriella and Samantha McCarter. Ladies, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to introduce yourselves and then we'll get into the conversation.
1: So I'm Samantha McCarter. Um, I currently teach fifth grade ELA and social studies at Griggs Road. Um, And this is my, I just finished up my 15th year of teaching. Awesome. So I um, am entering my 19th year
2: teaching this will be my 14th year at Griggs Road, and I'm currently teaching third grade, but I have taught the same children from first grade. I looped with them to second grade, and then I had the same kids last year um, in third grade. So kind of my whole personalized learning journey has been with that, that same group of students, which is a little unique.
0: Okay, awesome. Well, thank you, ladies, so much for introducing yourselves. And um, The first question I have for you is for you to tell me a little bit about your personalized learning journey up to this point. Tell us kind of where you started and where you currently are now with personalizing learning for your students.
1: So I can speak for what I did. Um, Briggs Road really jumped on the personalized learning bandwagon. And the year they jumped on the bandwagon, I actually had taken a year off with my son um, when I had him. So when I came into the personalized learning game, I felt like I was a year behind my colleagues. Um, and. Everything was familiar to them. So I did feel like I had a little bit of catch up um, when we first started. But um, when I started with personalized learning, um, I realized very quickly that I could not do everything personalized all the time. Um, I really had to find one thing that I knew would make a difference for my students and really focus in on that one thing. I started with, um, you know, using some other teacher's pathways and modifying for what I needed. Um, and then I began to figure out how to create my own, what was going to mean something to my students once I had seen, um, I feel like with personalized learning, there was a lot of trial and error. You know, some things went really great and some things we realized mm, that's not going to happen again, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's all part of the journey. Um, as I've gotten now, this is, I believe my third or fourth year with personalized learning. Um, I've really focused heavily on assessment um, and building in choice with assessment. I feel like that's where I've gotten the most bang for my buck out of what my students enjoy. And in teaching fifth grade, um, they have a lot of opinions. And so I gave them a chance to give me their opinions. um, And we had talked about how to do that. So by the end of this past school year, they were helping me create assessment choice boards and having voice in what they were learning in voice in what they enjoy doing as a showcase of what they've learned. Um, But I feel like that's kind of the basis of, or the basics of where my journey started was kind of starting with other people's things, then figuring out what worked for me and then finding that one thing that I really, um, I wouldn't say master by any means, but that was kind of my, my niche within personalized learning. And so you find that one thing and you really stick with it. And then you begin to branch out from there.
0: I love that. Thanks for sharing. Uh, One thing we always say, and I probably say it every episode that we're talking to an educator, um, is to think big, but start small and scale fast. So I love that that's been very true to you and your journey as well. Dory. what about you?
2: So oh, I would say COVID was definitely also um, a jumping off point for me. So the year that students came back from COVID was um, I was teaching first grade and we knew ahead of time that these students had only had half of kindergarten. So I really dived into like the pre-assessments. I really wanted to see what did they get from their kindergarten year and what were their gaps. And so to me, that's just where it all started. Um, And every child, depending on how much support they had at home, every child had a different amount of knowledge. And so they were, I mean, some were fluid readers and then some didn't even know their letter names. So I knew right then that I had to personalize their learning. Um, So I kind of did that with starting out with pathways for phonics. I knew that if I taught phonics whole group, it was going to bore my high my high flyers. And so I really had to dive right in. Um, that was the year I, we u- utilized Seesaw. So a lot of um, my pathways were done with Seesaw. and. Um, And I would say I focused mostly on the phonics piece. And then as the year went, of course, um, then I started making pathways and pre-assessments, post-assessments, and it all kind of just fell into place. The kids really, I thought they were too little, too young to really, had that ownership, but right from the start, they could see where they were. Um, I kind of had a data wall, so they knew where they wanted to be, needed to be, where their peers were. And so I feel like that motivation um, from the student ownership just kind of went hand in hand with with the
0: pathways. Absolutely. And what you just shared kind of goes into our next question. So we're in the middle of our series, Flexibility Within Fences. And in this episode, we really wanted to touch on and highlight overcoming the barrier of having lots of variation in student ability within the classroom, because we know that's something that a lot of teachers encounter. Um, and so when you think about how you navigated that part as teachers, and you kind of spoke to this a little bit, Dori, just now, where do you first start? Because I think that's one thing when we when we say to teachers that, being student-centered and personalizing their learning is what's best for kids, the first thing that we sometimes hear is, do you mean I have to create a separate assignment for every single child? Um, What does that look like? Um, Can y'all give us uh, a little bit of insight on where you might've started, especially um, being that we are dealing with a lot of variability in student ability?
2: Um, so I started with, you know, um, our technology coach and our principal helped us break down the objectives and the standards. And so we started with designing pre-assessments that truly tested that objective. And um, and I realized quickly that the way I used to teach, like reading, for example, I would do a pre-assessment like a Fontys and panel at the beginning of the year. And those kids, although they did move and there was kind of flexibility, I feel like they were kind of labeled like my low readers, my mid readers and then my high readers and they kind of stuck with those same groups for the whole year. But once I started getting into the um, the individual objectives and standards, I realized that they might have a strong understanding of like, say, main idea or supporting details, but then really need a lot of help and support when it came to inferencing. So the, they're small groups. When I did the pre assessment, their small groups just changed depending on every unit that I taught, and they weren't locked into that same reading
1: group for the whole year. Love that. Love that. Samantha, what are your thoughts? This past year, I had a class of gifted students, and then I had a gen ed class. Um, and so there was some variation in ability between my two classes. So definitely, neither class was a carbon copy of the other. We really had to dig into, um, what the kids actually knew. And a lot of that, just like Dory had mentioned, was based off of pre-assessment. That was so important. And knowing the power standards, you know, you can't pre-assess every single standard we teach. That would be exhausting. But knowing what your big standards are, give a pre-assessment for it, then you know where your your students are. And then you can design, um, I really like a choice board style pathway um, where depending on your pre-assessment score, everybody may get the same board, or sometimes there may be two or three different boards, depending on what your score was, but then you have choice in the activities that I've chosen, which were activities I probably would have used in class anyway in a station. It's not completely recreating the wheel, it's just kind of organizing it a little different, Um, but using that pre-assessment data to determine what they do. And students were really motivated um, to see the growth to see them get a new choice board once they had mastered something. Um, they even in, um, and like I mentioned with assessment, you know, we would pre-assess to know who, where students strengths were. And then after we went through our unit, having choice in their assessment and um, really being able to hone in on those students who may not like to talk in front of the class, but they're really great at producing something. And I had one student who was incredibly shy I I honestly, if she spoke out loud right now, I'm not real sure I would recognize her voice out loud because she just didn't talk. But she chose to do a animated line draw in Keynote where she animated um, a main character from a novel and she sketched it out and they had to voice record telling how this character changed over time and what um, events impacted this character. And it was beautiful. Hmm. Her, I mean, she shown like I had never known she was able to. Um, And just having that to know where their strengths and weaknesses are also in how they show you what they know um, is also really important too.
2: I guess that really reminds me of, we also started out the journey with personalized learning by investigating some learner profiles. And so we realized, you know, how we are trying to get the same feedback and same information from our students, but they could look so differently from a first grade learner profile to a fifth grade. But we, we kind of really dived into how do our kids learn best? Like who are our kids that like to work together? Who are our technology kids who are Mm -hmm. our students who like to produce something, create, who are the ones that like to read, to get the knowledge. So I think starting out each year with, that strong learner profile and that strong understanding of what kind of learners and teaching the kids how to recognize in themselves what kind of learner they are. I think that helps, like Samantha said, when they get to the choice board and having the options for the different activities, they're able to have, you know, more insight on what activity would be best for their learning style.
0: Absolutely. And you all are given so many strategies that really can help meet learners um, at all levels in your classroom, are there any other strategies um, that come to mind for you when you think of navigating a classroom with students of various abilities?
1: There's a lot that we did with peer buddies too. Okay, um, having them learn from peers as well. You know, once you had, um, you know, had a very high score on a pre-assessment. Those who had very low scores. Sometimes we would, one of the activities made to be to work with somebody at a different level than you. And the students were okay knowing that they were at different levels. I think it starts with community, um, building community in that classroom too, along with the learner profile. And they know how they learn, they know what's best for them, and partnering them with somebody who may have the same learning style, but understood the content at a different level. And so partnering them together to work um, that worked a lot. That worked really well with the older students. You know, it looks a little different for young, but I, Dory does a good job of this kind of thing too.
2: I think starting for me, like starting with the end in mind. Like I had to really analyze, like where do they need to be, and some of my kids realizing some of them were already there. So what am I going to do for them, and what are they going to be working on? Which gets into like the application piece, and then. You know, what are the activities that would get my students to show mastery, but not necessarily to that higher level of the application? And like Samantha said, partnering the groups, you know, letting them teach each other, letting them present what they've learned so that my my students who aren't there yet are aren't just hearing it from me, but they're also hearing it from their classmates, that buy-in. So really, I think starting with that end in mind and knowing that you've got to push some, but really emphasize where the students are who might not reach that higher goal.
0: Can you talk more about the role that SOPs or standard operating procedures have played a role in your classroom? Because that's something that we always suggest to teachers who are just starting this work.
2: Um, absolutely. That was a big part for me just because I, I had been used to teaching like third grade, second grade, and then getting these kids from kindergarten where they were at home learning with their parents. They were not independent at all. They needed me basically to hold their hand from every step they made. So I knew immediately that I needed to put in some procedures for them in the classroom where they could own their own learning and make choices for themselves. So I had like a flow chart in my classroom for early finishers. Like what do they do next? If they're done with this, what do they do? And it was just kind of boxes. And first in first grade, I started it with pictures. So I showed them a picture of like their book box. So they could that was a chance they could pick new books or clean out their book box. And then I showed them a picture of some certain apps that they could work on on their iPad. But just getting them used to, moving to the next thing when they finished and not always feeling like they needed to come and show me or get me to tell them the next step. So that flow chart was, was super helpful. I know, Samantha, you did one that was more digital,
1: didn't you? We did have one that was digital that we had loaded into Canvas. And, you know, that was the difference between, you know, first grade and fifth grade. Okay. Um, we had loaded it in because there was an early finisher module within our course. Um, and they could go in there and it had generic choices. And then there was a note that also there were specific things to what we were teaching. So the flow chart we had was fairly generic where it started with, you know, the, what do I do when I'm through, you know, kind of that, that title that teachers have used forever, but we went in and it was certain things within iReady or within, um, a, a module within Canvas that related to the topic. And then there was even more specific things that You know, on the board, we would have a list of things that they could do once they were finished and it just teaching them to be seamless. And once they complete one task, we don't have to go talk to the teacher. We now we can get started on something else that's going to take me even further.
2: And I think it really having some of these procedures in place and spending the time building, like Samantha said, building that community. I think kids really just crave structure and rules. We build our classroom rules at the beginning of the year together. We call them non-negotiables. And one thing that I started doing was having the students kind of rate where we were, like not met, met, mastery, and using stickers. And so the students were able to recognize, you know, like talking in the hall, that's hard for us. Or after a brain break, getting settled and getting back to work, that's hard for us. And so each... Kind of quarter we would check in with our non-negotiables and we would sticker ourselves and rate ourselves. And and I feel like that definitely also brought our students together, that it wasn't ever my rules, it was our classroom, our rules. That helps. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, definitely. With everything that you've shared so far, all the strategies that you've been using in your classrooms, what specific impact have you seen on students and their perception of learning? as a result of being in your classrooms. And Dory, I'm sure you might be able to speak uh, to this more specifically because you've been having the same students follow you for a couple of years.
2: (laughs) Um, Absolutely. So I feel like Samantha kind of pinpointed that the students realize quickly based on the pretest, like where they are, and it's never been any type of a big deal for them to know where their peers are or where they fall in line. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the biggest things for me is the celebration. The students celebrate each other. They are so proud of each other when, when one meets a milestone and they realize like how much effort and how much work that each other puts into that meeting that standard. And so I think that's huge is when the rest of the students celebrate that child. And then as far as families go, um, I think that all of this, like, the standards-based learning and just opened up a way to communicate with parents where their children weren't just receiving an A or a B. They really recognized, like, exactly where their student was struggling or areas that their student had strength. So, I think that was also super helpful. I don't know. Samantha, can you add on? Yeah.
1: So... With um what I've seen with from kids is they really do, just like Dory pointed out, they take ownership of their learning. They are invested in it, um, and they take pride in what they've done. They want to showcase something. And so when once we have pinpointed learning styles through learning profiles, we've gone through the instruction, through pathways, or I mean, there still is direct instruction happening amongst personalized learning, and that's something that people need to understand too. Um, is that direct instruction didn't go by the wayside, you know, however you choose. Mm -hmm. And then um, when they get to showcase what they have learned, the pride that they take, the effort they put in is tremendous. Um, I I got some amazing things from students and now they have tools in their toolbox. And so they feel more confident, especially leaving because I'm fifth grade, going to middle school. And middle school can be a scary place, but now they have tools in their toolbox that they know are easy ways for them to show what they've learned and to share with others. Um, and so the pride and the ownership in it um, has been huge. And I think it starts with the younger students, just like Dory mentioned, just starting small and building them up each year. So by the time they become an older learner, they have those tools in their toolbox. They have that confidence to know, well, I'm probably not gonna wanna talk in front of somebody, but I'm okay hiding behind my iPad um, re- and recording my voice And letting my voice be heard that way. Yeah. You know, that way they don't have to see people face to face. Um, But seeing the ownership that they take and the pride they have in their work has been huge.
2: They definitely become advocates. I know when they take their post-tests, if it's not that 80, it's never me that's saying, oh, I think you should try that again, or I think we need to practice this a little more. It's totally the students. They come to me and say, I know I can do better. I want to practice this or play this game Mm -hmm. a few more times. And they recognize that that's not their best, and they don't quit until they have achieved their goal. And I think that That's kind of one of the biggest eye openings for me. I've never in 18 years teaching, I've never really seen that advocacy, that ownership, that drive to want to do better that I've seen
1: in the last few years. And that's a shift from parents because parents used to be the advocates. Oh, well, my child needs to retake this test. My child needs to do this. And now it's not the parents. It's the students asking. And now that's been a big shift for us. The students want to do this.
0: That's so powerful. And it sounds like you are you guys are cultivating that perseverance in your students, which, like you said, Samantha, that's not just something that they need for now. That's something they need for life. So that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Let's shift a little bit and talk about small groups. What are the benefits of small groups versus um, a fully, I guess, lecture style classroom?
1: So small groups, it depends. It honestly, it really depends on what you're teaching. You know, with um with the older students, we usually do a mini lesson, whole group, and then we'll break off into smaller groups based off skills that they need. There are still days where we do stay whole group because it's just kind of a, a lesson that everybody needs to hear. But I feel like in your core subject areas, your your ELA, your math, that's where your small groups are really gonna fall and and really targeting in on those power standards and seeing where those students are and getting them to where they need to be. But I know Dory mentioned earlier, small groups don't always stay the same either. You know, you have a student, like she mentioned, that's really strong with main idea and details, but inferencing is really difficult. And so then they're going to join a different group of friends for that, that small group, just like she had mentioned. Um, and so small groups definitely are very important within the personalized learning because that's a form of personalization, is putting them into their small group with students who are like minded and are all working for the same goal,
2: and I'll say, I went back to the days when I used to teach, you know, guided reading and and traditional like centers, workshop model. It was really important for me to have a quiet classroom so that I can meet with my little guided reading group and and everybody else was kind of busy doing what they needed to do independently. And and I would say now the most challenging part of small group is that even though I'm working with my group, the other students are all still working together. So the days of that quiet classroom have definitely changed. I've got kids working outside on the sidewalk. I've got them in the hallway. Um, I have them kind of across the hall in the assistant's little office area because so much of what they're doing requires that collaboration piece and and they do rely on their peers Mm -hmm. one of you know one of our sops in my classroom is before they get my help they have to explain what they're confused about and they have to seek out the help from one of their peers in their group so i think just the collaboration piece and them working together has definitely um increased
0: awesome now, how do you structure your small groups in terms of timing, especially when you're looking at maybe having segmented time frames for different subjects? How do you structure your small groups? And um, you spoke about how the makeup of the groups change over time, but does the structure also change from day to day or week to week? I
2: definitely think the groups change based on the pre- pre-assessment, but I also think you know, like Samantha said, some days I need to spend longer. If it's a concept none of my students are aware of, then I'll spend longer in whole group and less time in small group. But generally, the most of my day is spent in small group instruction, and I teach social studies and ELA. So I teach small groups for my ELA content, and I do my writing in small groups. I try to meet with two small groups a day. But like I said, even if they're not meeting with me, they're still meeting with their book club or their learning circle. And so that they're not working all,
1: always just independently without getting support from somebody. For me, there is a lot of change within a group. So, you know, we, we are kind of locked into a time segment um, within the school day. And so sometimes that is restricting. Um, I would say for most skills, it's probably about a 15 minute rotation because that's kind of manageable, you can accomplish what you need to within that time. And it is so important to set a goal for that day too. We get lost in talking with students and you start going down this rabbit hole of teaching. You're like, oh, this is going be great. And it's been 35 minutes and you realize they're just staring at the ceiling while you're talking. So restricting that time um, is so important, but making sure that you have that goal set too. You don't want to exhaust them and then they still need that time to practice in their independent work time and collaborating with their peers as well.
0: Thank you all for sharing that. I know that we're talking to two elementary star teachers, but I think this is also something that can be useful in middle school and high school. And as a former middle school teacher, I definitely employed small groups. So thank you all for sharing um, your expertise on that. Finally, the the last subject I kind of want to touch on briefly is class size. We have some listeners out there who may be thinking, you know, oh, this sounds so great, but my class size is just way too big. What would you say to them? So,
2: the last three years, I've had um, like 22, 23 students, which in my teaching career, that's kind of on the higher side. I've normally in the past had 18 or 19 students. So, I definitely feel like The biggest part for me that's helpful with a larger class size is building that community and building in those SOPs and just spending the time at the beginning of the year to really organize and set up the expectations. To me, the classroom management, if you can get the classroom management in line at the start of the year, then everything else kind of falls into place.
1: And that's, I completely agree with Dory. I have had up to 25 in a class. And yes, that is a lot, but it can still be done as long as those procedures, just like she said, you take the time at the beginning of the year, you know, when students are excited to come into school, let's take time to talk about all of those SOPs, all of those procedures that are going to get us to our end goal. And it can be done with those groups. It requires planning. (laughs) You have to plan. You have to have that goal in mind and you have to be flexible. And have that flexible environment because you can't keep 25 bodies working collaboratively inside your classroom. I know Dory mentioned that her students are in the hallway, in the assistance room, out on the sidewalk. You know, it's the same for us. You have to have that flexible environment. And those SOPs have to be in place for if you're working in the hallway. That's not a place to goof off. That's not a place to get in trouble. So even with larger class sizes, there's lots of ways that you can utilize your space and utilize areas within your building for students to be able to collaborate while still you are able to do your small group instruction without it being too loud or being interrupted.
0: What advice would you have for teachers who um, are interested in taking the dive into student-centered learning, but may not know where to start? I think for me,
2: looking at the data, that's just kind of where I started off and where Where I saw the kids and the families really buy in when I included them in how what I saw when I when they started tracking their own data and they 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 just couldn't get enough they wanted to raise their score or build their bar and so I think starting with like a data notebook and letting the kids see where where they need to be and where they currently are. I think that's a manageable piece to do, and I think that that really encourages the kids to really want that next step of, okay, I know I'm down here. How are you, teacher, going to help me get up here? I think it really just shows them that they, they need you, and they need to be listening, and they need to be working hard. And so... I feel like they're more receptive to the learning when
0: they know exactly where they fall on that data point. And I know data notebooks can look differently. Can you tell us, Dory, what yours look like for your littles? Uh, so they're a little
2: messy. They do theirs. My students have kept their data notebook from first grade to second grade to third grade. I just use a three ring binder and they I add plastic sleeves to it. And even in first grade, they can put those papers in plastic sleeves, but they track, they track their reading, they track their iReady goals, they track, my partner teacher and I use the same binder, so they also have a section for their math, but we do all of our post-tests, pre-tests and post-tests, so they can see their growth, each quarter, they set some goals for themselves. So they there's like a writing element where they, they write about what's going well and what they feel like they need to work on. And it's not always academic. Sometimes it's like a behavior goal. It's definitely the whole child. And they're very proud of their data notebooks. But like I said, they're not what I would consider very organized. That's part of all of this is like losing a little bit of that control and letting them be in charge of it. So they're not super organized and they're not very neat, but there is there is data and they are so proud. Any visitor that comes in the room, they want to show off where they started and where they are and where they're going to go next. So it's
0: definitely powerful for them. Samantha, what about you? What advice do you have for teachers just getting started in this work?
1: So, and I know I mentioned it earlier to start small. Pick Mm -hmm. one thing that you want to do. Do not try to do it in every subject for everything. Um, Really looking at those power standards and even looking at progressions of the standard. I know that the new ELA standards are written more in the form of a progression and it shows what they know in third grade, what they should know in fourth grade, what they should know in fifth grade. Um, And so looking at those pieces to know what they should have and where they're trying to get to um, is so important. And when you're looking at um, writing a pathway, it's not recreating the wheel, that it's really using a lot of those station activities that you were already using in your classroom. You're just organizing it a little bit differently. It may not be that everybody goes to station A, B and C. Now you have A, B and C on your choice board. And when they go to that station depends on their scores, how it falls, um, what their pre-assessment shows, Um, but really starting small and looking at just one thing at a time.
0: Great advice. Thank you, ladies. If there's anyone out there who would like to get in touch with you or hear more about your personalized learning journey, what is the best way for them to get in touch?
2: I would recommend that they request from their principal just to come out and visit. I think spending a day in a classroom that is personalized learning is the best way to kind of jump in and get started and learn. So if anybody ever wants to come spend the day with me, my door is always open. If that doesn't work out, I think just emailing me and then we can set up a time to do like this, like a. A FaceTime call or a, a Zoom call. So my email address is dory.petriella at clover.k12.sc.us. Awesome.
1: And I feel the exact same as Dory. Um, I felt like I learned the most when I was able to observe other teachers, even just within my building. And mm-hmm. that made a huge difference. And seeing that it's not as scary as it sounds um, and that everything is not 100% personalized for the entire day. You know, that can be a daunting um, thing to think about when you're planning personalized learning. But coming in to visit, like Dory said, my door is always open as well. Um, and my email is another great way to get in touch with me. And it's samantha.mccarter at clover.k12.sc.us.
0: Awesome. Well, once again, thank you, ladies, so much for spending time with me. and. For having this conversation. I know that our listeners have enjoyed and now they have a great way to get in touch with you. Um, Griggs Road is a school that we frequently do inquiry labs at. So please feel free to reach out to these ladies or um, check out our website, which will be linked in the description to sign up for an inquiry lab and come see this work in action. Thank you, ladies. Once again, we'll be right back to close things out. Thanks again for tuning in to today's episode of Making It Personal. Connect with the Personalized Learning team by visiting our website, personalizedsc.ed.sc.gov. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, share with a friend, and tune in for a new episode every month. We'll catch you next time on Making It Personal. See ya!